Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel Little Conversation, where experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom, and think. I'm Dana Mackey, Research Director at Mintel. Today, we're talking about the current landscape for startups with a few of our analysts from Mintel Disruptor, which is Mintel's global program supporting the startup sector. Before we dive in, let's do a quick round of introductions. Hi, my name is Caleb Bryant, Associate Director of Food and Drink Reports at Mintel. Hi, I'm Emma Allman. I am a junior analyst with the Disruptor program at Mintel. Hi, I am uh, Jack Duckett. I'm the Associate Director for Consumer Lifestyles Research uh, here in London. The focus of our conversation today is the environment for startups, which looks a little bleak because we're talking about I want to say post-COVID world, but I don't even know if there's a such thing as a post-COVID world anymore. It just seems like COVID is kind of going on forever. So in this environment where people are kind of retreating into the familiar, maybe relying on the bigger trusted brands, what's the landscape look like for startups? If I could start, uh, Dana, I think from the, the food and drink perspective, there certainly has been this major shift in consumer priorities. Uh, just a few months ago, it feels a lot longer than that, but before prior to the pandemic, you know, consumers were really interested in new experiences and trying new food and drink products. We saw consumers were willing to take a chance on a startup food or drink product to spend a little bit more on a more premium item, maybe a little bit more sustainable brand just to try something new. Now we see that consumers are very much prioritizing familiarity and budget, which has resulted in really strong growth of these big national legacy brands that up until really very recently were dealing with the threat of startups. And uh, we see that these large companies, you know, even they are deprioritizing some of their more uh, cutting edge innovation products that uh, were kind of designed to compete with some of the startup brands. And instead, they're really focusing on those core brands that consumers know and trust. And we're seeing that for a lot of these startups, it's a little bit harder to receive investments, funding, and from that retailer perspective, retailers right now are just so focused on keeping their shelves stocked with essentials that they're less likely to give shelf space to some of these smaller startup companies. Do you think it was interesting though, early days, I don't know that this is so much the case anymore, but um, you could see that some startups were getting like unexpected business because the shelves weren't stocked, right? Like people were looking for um, soup in store and all the soup was sold out. So they would go online and find smaller companies and startups that, that had plenty and were, were more than happy to ship it out. Uh, so there's, there's been, I, I think for certain products, there's been kind of an up and down in recent days of people being forced to try, consumers being forced to try these new um, di- different and interesting products. And hopefully for the businesses, um, getting new loyal consumers because they were there when they needed them the most. I think what's been um, <clears throat> really interesting is that um, it, it was quite a shock even even for, for those familiar with food and drink categories. So we saw an immediate shift as COVID-19 emerged towards stockpiling. I think that was pretty much globally seen where the shelves became empty and everything, just them were saying everything, everything disappeared completely and people were, were grabbing for products. 
a lot of, you know, it's, it's important to remember why that was. That was on the expectation. We couldn't go out. We were going to be having to cut ourselves off and make sure we had products in store to use up in our homes. Now, that behavior has kind of calmed down and certainly um, stockpiling is, is, is less evident. But some of Intel's tracker data shows that people are still going to the shops and saying, I'm stocking up on food and food. That's, you know, even when that sits maybe 40% of, of your population, that's still an enormous group of people who are actively each week thinking, I'll get this in stock in case there's a risk. So we've become really bunker, um, bunkerized, if you will, in terms of how we're thinking about this and, and our approach. The problem there from a startup perspective that I think is interesting is that it, startups typically have either existed in or made new sexier categories where it's fresher, it's more interesting. And in our desire to stock up and stockpile, we're heading toward ambient and frozen foods in a way that we haven't seen uh, since the 70s in the UK. And that's really interesting because all those things we sort of said, these are very tired, very dry categories, um, are suddenly getting a lot of loving. They're suddenly getting a lot of people wanting to buy them. And actually, that those fresher, newer, sort of on-the-go categories, we've seen so much innovation in from startups, feel less relevant to lifestyles at this point. Of course, you could pivot and say that those are still uh, pretty dry categories. They're still not very interesting categories. There is actually, therefore, room for innovation from startups in sort of things like frozen ambient foods. Um, but currently, they're still dominated by quite big, older brands. And so it's in that that we've seen a loss of a sort of engagement with the startup market just due to where people, where priorities have been in terms of, in- of innovation. It's interesting as well to watch how people are, how consumers are responding to different claims um, uh, with startups because, you know, before, pre-COVID, we were in the before times, we were seeing a lot of startups with a billion different claims on their product of, of gluten-free, vegan-friendly, just say, and anything that could grab the consumer's attention and be a little bit niche, um, um, and, and have that like kind of a, a health halo. Um, and, and I think the immediate response was people don't care anymore. <laughs> They're stocking up and they, they, they just want their comfort food and they, they want the familiar. Um, I think to a certain extent, that's not going to go away. Like, like Jack said, like people, people are still going into the grocery store and <laughs> picking up the first roll of toilet paper they can find. But I also think that it's tapering, right? Like, like the, the, we were at extreme, we were at two extreme points and we're at extreme points and they're going to come together at a point where people are still going to want the familiar. They're still going to want to stock up. They're still going to want the, the easy shelf stable foods, the comfort foods. And they're also going to wonder why those foods don't also have the claims that they were looking for that startups were offering um, in the before times. And so that, that it's an opportunity. Yeah, I think like just looking forward, we can definitely, you know, look towards the last recession for some indications of what were some of those opportunities for startups um, because, you know, a lot of consumers facing economic uncertainty, many will return to uh, the national brands, um, private label, of course, but also there are opportunities for more premium startups that really kind of cater to the um, to occasions that were typically satisfied by restaurants. So we're going to see reduced restaurant expenditures, but consumers still having like a strong desire to have that special occasion restaurant experience within the home. So I think products that somehow kind of offer that experience, um, have some, uh, some potential. Uh, I think, uh, 
some some examples that come to mind would be uh, uh, within the alcohol sector, like products, brands that are able to empower consumers to um, uh, replicate like cocktails at home or just special other specialty drinks that really be positioned as as a value. So you're saving a lot of money by not having to order a cocktail at home um, and other food and drink products that uh, allow the average consumer to create a meal that tastes like something that they might be able to get from a restaurant. Absolutely. Actually, that experimentalism is really interesting because the shift towards shopping online, which we've seen in, in the grocery sector and certainly across Europe, um, and I, I know our, our uh, analyst teams in China also observed as well. It's interesting because it, it encourages a level of experimentalism. In so many shops, certainly in Europe, you might have, especially you've moved towards more convenient stores over the last few years. The range of goods available is often quite small, and it's certainly very focused on on the go. So, so people working in fields of, of startups that are much more about sort of home cooking and home eating experience. It might be a really premium gherkin brands, like a favorite of mine, or a really, um, I'm not obsessed with table sources. That's a really fancy table sources brand. But these are things that kind of get pushed out in the way that the shopping experience has moved on in the last few years. Although people are very engaged with these areas, the more we go to, you know, I'll just do a top-up shop or I'll go to here, they kind of start to lose out. You have to be a real foodie to engage with them. Now, where you've got people moving to the online shop, it actually almost uh, levels the playing field a little bit. So you could, you could say it allows people to see that if I'm going to buy, I'm going to click in mayonnaise, it's actually going to my table sources area. And actually I can see in there a range of brands that I'm not familiar with. There's, there's so many things that what's this, what's that? They, they come with great reviews. So often these startup brands, um, and because we haven't had to go to the shops, we haven't had to leave the house. We're actually using that time a little bit to, um, to explore what's in front of us in, in, in the retail space. And that, that being a white page with lots of different products, as you say, finding growth for online retail, is, is quite, uh, quite democratizing to, the, to brands. And I think that is really interesting. That, that's a true opportunity of, of um, pitch leveling between brands in, in a way that we haven't seen. So that, that, I would say, is definitely a good thing, even if there are lots of other challenges. Sorry, I was just going to say it's funny you bring that up because I just taught my grandma how to use uh, the Walmart app so she can just go and pick food up without having to go into the store. So we were all concerned about her. But watching her, watching how she wanted to use that app was fascinating because she she, she would type in the, the food and that she wanted and if if the brand that she usually buys and recognizes didn't pop up in the first like two rows, she was like, no, this is done. I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. I don't want to reveal too much about myself, but I feel the exact same way. (laughs) But that's, it's fascinating that you bring that up in, in, uh, in relation to startups though, because I don't, I don't know how many people on an app would be likely to try something new versus in a store. Right. Like even if they had those like like a little section saying like here are some new interesting brands to try. I, I, I just don't know what consumer interest is in going to like a, a grocery store app and and trying out new brands from there. And that may change in the coming days that that maybe it's just something people need to get used to buying online. Um, that's an interesting thing I hadn't thought about. So thank you, Jack, for bringing that up. <laughs> so it sounds like there are still, oppor- obviously, there's still opportunities for startups. I'm just going to recap a couple of the ones that you brought up uh, and then talk a little bit more about what startups can do. But thinking about shifting claims to make them super relevant to what's happening right now, thinking about 
how you can position yourself as an alternative to dining out. So either as people are trading down to dining out because they can't afford it or they still can't access their local restaurants, positioning your food product as something that would be a suitable alternative. And also there are going to be categories. Caleb, I love that you brought up like premium alcohol. There's going to be categories that are more, um, that are going to grow a little bit faster because people aren't dining out. And so it's thinking about where those categories are for larger brands that are maybe making acquisitions or supporting startups thinking about the differentiation between those categories and also e-commerce. Like how do you stand out on shelf when your shelf is on an app? But I wanted to see if we could take this further. Are there other areas that startups should be thinking about um, in terms of maybe small shifts to their positioning um, that can help maybe boost their potential right now? Well, kind of to uh, a little bit what Kayla was talking about um, uh, just in offering what consumers are looking for. So like the, his, his example is what people want in uh, like a restaurant experience at home, right? But uh, there are certain things that consumers are talk, focusing on now, particularly with health. So like immunoboosting products. If, you're, if, you're, if you are a food and drink product that has a hint of that, within your within <laughs> within so what you're offering <laughs> yes yes if you are i mean it may not have occurred to you prior to this to to make that a focus but it is such a big deal for that to be a focus right now um uh even even just highlighting it even just saying hey all that other great stuff that we always said we do we still do that and <laughs> we can help you with your health is it, it's just hugely important to kind of i think um understand exactly what you can offer um, and and highlight that. Yeah, I think just building off of that, definitely any kind of immunosupport claims are highly relevant right now. And I think that there's going to be a shift in consumers taking a more like preventative approach to their health. Um, and this is just something I've been thinking about as someone who looks at the beverage industry within beverages and also food like the trend in the past few years has been the you know the the wellness market and wellness claims that oftentimes are more focused on uh not hard scientific research like it's a lot of this will make you feel this way but it's there's a little bit of gray area of what they can and cannot put on pack and i mean this is just something i've been thinking about is are we going to see a bit of a backlash to that uh given that consumers everyone now knows what an N95 mask is. Everyone it knows about is learning about transmission rates. And and I think there we're seeing like this greater emphasis on science and and in and in facts. And that may translate to the food and drink industry where consumers they they want to know that the claims that products are making are backed by science, that they're that it, it's real that they're going to feel it. They're going to experience it. And for, for brands that can kind of, that have that legitimacy behind their claims, I think that appeal to consumers and stand out in the market. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I would, I would agree with that and say that what's interesting is short term. I think it's not good for brands. It's tricky for brands with, um, with more difficult health stories. If you're, if you're in an educational point right now where you're trying to educate people about your health benefits, I would say that it's, it's not a good day for that. It's going to be very tricky to get people to take the time and uh, to think about how, you know, there's a really fantastic brand here in the UK, for instance, that's sort of engaged about how be looking after your gut health, which is 
absolutely central to its whole mission, is actually very good for your immune system. The two are one and the same. Actually, you can link them around. Now, that's absolutely true. They've, they've got some really great scientific research behind that. I would say short term, that is quite a long journey for the, for the shopper to go through when they're trying to get their shopping done quickly. They're trying to now think, okay, so sorry, gut health, wait there one more time, vitamin C, wait, good for my immune system. It's quite a mental leap for them to get through. So I would say that in the short term, that's trickier, but I absolutely agree with Caleb. I think people will go away and as time sort of, as, as things settle and people start to think, okay, how can I take a more proactive approach to the, the next pandemic or the next problem that comes this way? What do I need to do? I clearly need to think, well, how can I look after my immune system? I don't want to be one of these poor people in their later life who is really vulnerable to this disease. What can I do? And is that about looking after my gut health? If that gives me long-term immune system benefits, do I need to look into that? So I think you're going to get an ever more learned audience out of this long-term. And, and, and that's going to be very challenging for all brands, startups and big brands alike. They're going to really start to think, I don't think that's correct. It's not what you need. Those nuances in chemicals, ingredients, flavorings, they've, they've been on the way of being challenged for a while now, but that'll just get louder and more aggressive, I would suggest. Um, so good luck. <laughs> I think that that also translates into... This is on my brain because I was, of course, woke up and scrolling through Instagram this morning <laughs> and something that I'm seeing a lot of people um, less in response to COVID and more in response to uh, the protests that are happening right now um, and, and the Black Lives Matters uh, movement is saying, hey, here's a list of companies that are supporting someone who uh, is uh, uh, allowing racist policies to go through, who's pushing racist laws, who's um, not good for our communities. Don't shop from them. Don't buy from them. Don't support them. Um, and I think that that could be an opportunity for, for startups as well is to raise their hands and say, hey, by the way, uh, I have been a part of this community. I've been on the ground with this community. I... I am here for the community in so many different ways. There's a lot of cause-based startups um, who really keep their eyes on, on the prize as far as their, um, their ethics go. And between, between people wanting more science behind the claims with COVID and people wanting uh, uh, more authentic values from companies um, in recent days, I think, I think there's a lot of startups that need to speak up and say, in whatever way they can, and say, hey, consumers, like, it's not all evil, bad companies out there. <laughs> like, we're here for you. Um, and and, and if, if you want us to survive and continue to be here for you, you need to support us um, and buy our products. I think less passive. I, I think, I, I just think that it's going to be much hard. I agree with you. Sorry, I absolutely agree with you on that. I think it's going to be very hard to get away with slightly passive or even rapid ethical um, offerings, you know, I think there's, the, the day's gone even for we support this charity. Or I, I think there needs to be a real step up in your intent with your ethical message. I think what's really extraordinary is we had a day of, of black squares all over Instagram and people were holding their friends and followers quite heavily to account. Sorry, have you earned your, your black square? It's a totally fair question. So if you're a brand taking part in this and you say, look, we stand for this and this, if I'm being held to account by my friends totally fairly, I certainly think brands will be held to account quite aggressively too. You know, as a, as a friend who's near to them, they just want the best out of me as a friend. Why wouldn't you want the best out of a, a very large company? So I think it would be a very hard bar to rise to. And I think startups often are, as we've seen so much of our research, are going one step further in their ethical 
offering. It is, it is always about helping. Um, and, and it doesn't always have to just be about the latest, um, the latest process. It can be about helping those from socioeconomically poorer backgrounds in Chicago is one of your great brands. Or is it about, you know, it's, they need to see a tangible difference that this brand is making. And I think where some of the bigger brands are getting away with, with kind of lip service, the smaller brands are really holding themselves to a high standard. So I, I agree with you there. I think, I think it's going to be very tricky for brands to get away with, with passive ethics in the coming, coming years. Yeah, I think any, anything ethical related for for any brand, out even outside of food and drink, like it's not. I completely agree. It's not enough to just have a you know a black Instagram post. I think that, and it's not even just like that. Like the community, Black Lives Matter support. It's it's it has to do with sustainability. It has to do with um, you know uh, any kind of ethical ethical claim that it, I think it has to be integral to the brand. Like the brand needs to reflect those values, um, whether that be the, the sustainability, whether it be community support. Uh, it's, it's not enough to just so, like touch on these topics lightly. I think that brands that really highlight these ethical claims as a core value, like almost a reason why the product exists, um, that will resonate with consumers. And, you know, frankly, it is, I think consumers, some are going to be less likely to, you know, buy a more sustainable product version of X just due to cost concerns. But if they feel like this brand authentically represents these ethical claims and that is how some of these these companies kind of weather the, the recessionary storm so as we start wrapping up this conversation i would love to hear from the experts what you're seeing in the startup space that are really emerging concepts and ideas that you're tracking right now so yeah i think i'm really really interested in how brands sit within sort of national identity. I know it's something that both you, Dana, and we have both looked at actually in laugh over the years in our Global Lifestyles reports. Um, we see so much discussion from, from, our, from our clients, from those we talk to and engage with all about what's happening about sort of American identity. We talked about the American dream. We talked about British brand, brand Britain. These are huge, hugely important aspects of the sort of cultural landscape. And yet there seems to be dissatisfaction growing with them. People don't know what to do with them, what they stand for, what they mean. Now, tied to those are so often brands and brand association. We have brands that are the epitome of, of brand America. We have brands that are so British. And yet a lot of it is we don't feel like there's an alternative coming through. We don't feel like there's something that, that really epitomizes a new type of America, a new type of, of the UK. And you see it across Europe as well. What does, what does it mean if we move away from just trying to take stereotypical croissants in France and berries and French flags. What's the new depiction of these? We've got new ideas coming through with younger generations. How can we impose those? I think what's great about startups, and I said, I said younger generations, but you see this from startups of people of all ages, it's, it's really important to point out here, is a new alternative. They're creating brand new brands within the nation they're based in that offer a new definition of what it can mean to be part of that country. And I think What's the opportunity is to say, look, I'm part of Brand Britain. I'm not covered in union flags. I'm not covered in beef eaters or references to the Queen and corgis. Those are also really important cultural aspects of being British. But I'm offering you something new. And actually being British these days is about being proud of your heritage, calling out your heritage where you, you might not necessarily be thrilled with it, and actually making sure that you're part of a future, you know, part of a way of making things better. Both countries whether they've got things wrong or right, have a long history of trying to make things better in the future. And now we've got a better magnifying glass to look at that. And brands are helping you to pave you a long way to do it. I think startups are doing a great job of this. And they will be the bigger brands tomorrow because they are 
tallying with people's aspirations to be better and, and have a better world. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with Jack. Um, something that I think about a lot with, um, even even in the before times with startups, but I think especially now, um, is it, it's hugely important that they find their community and keep their community in mind. Um, whether whether that's uh, representing uh, the country they come from or or, or if, if they're cause-based and uh, there's a company in Chicago, T-Squares, who is, is, is very cause-based and they are, every part of their production process is geared towards helping the community within Chicago and, and raising people up. Um, and I think, I think it can feel hard to do that. I think, I think definitely challenges come with that. Um, but if you if you keep that as your lens, your cause as your lens, your community as your lens, um, the community will pay you back, <laughs> and and will and will help as Caleb said, help you weather weather whatever comes next, weather the recession, um, and 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 I just I just I think I think people lose sight of that in the panic sometimes. I think businesses lose sight of that in the panic, um, but the the value that startups can bring. And, and smaller businesses can bring is really that investment in community. And oftentimes like you start with that community and it's, it's small at first, but it just keeps getting larger and larger. And because you have those authentic relationships, you know, that, that really resonates with consumers and whether that, that community trend or the, uh, the just, reason that community exists it does kind of it, it, it grows and i i just kind of think of many of the successful uh startup brands that began by you know targeting consumers who followed a specific diet or had a specific um, health condition and that ended up kind of becoming more familiar to consumers and achieving kind of more mass market adoption I have loved listening to your thoughts on this topic. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. I took some notes just because I thought this was fascinating. It sounds, from what you're saying, it sounds like this is going to be, it's a challenging time for startups and small businesses in general, but it also sounds, I've gotten like a little bit of optimism from this conversation because it does sound like we're also on this precipice of change. Um, and that can be a huge opportunity for people that are thinking differently and bringing new things to market. So it did leave me feeling a little bit better about the situation. So thank you for sharing all of this with me. Um, and thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast content. We'll be here next week with another episode of Little Conversation. Little Conversation.